powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please, everyone, sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a big thank you to my last guests, Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson. Both were incredible guests, and the episode will go down as a personal favorite of mine. If you have not heard our in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 197, and we have a great episode lined up for you today. We have on the show Stephen P. Jarko. Stephen is an Academy Award-winning producer, lawyer, and real estate investor, as well as an expert in the field of AI. He is the co-author of the new book, The Roaring Twenties, Prosper in Volatile Times, Stephen will be discussing AI and its place in our ever-developing modern world. And folks, when I say expert, I do mean expert. So let's get him out here. Duval Nation, please welcome to the show. Calling in today from Dallas, Texas, Academy Award-winning producer, Stephen P. Jarko. <laughs> Stephen, hello. Welcome to the Derek Duval Show. How is the weather out by you today? Well, uh, it's actually quite beautiful. I'm in Dallas today, and we've had really hot weather for the last three months, but it broke last week, and now it's very pleasant. Nice, nice. Uh, do you live in Dallas? I live in Dallas. Uh, I also have a home in Los Angeles and in Wisconsin, which is where I'm from originally. Okay, right on. So with the pandemic now coming to an end, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? Well, it was uh, very good for one of our businesses. We have, a, among our other media businesses, we have a streaming business aimed at the gay audience. And that business grew during the pandemic because people were at home you know, watching streaming. And that growth has continued. Uh, it sort of gave us a, a nice boost. And as to business, it's been very good. Of course, uh, during the pandemic, there wasn't a lot we could do. We couldn't get out and be among other humans. And it's sort of changed uh, the workplace and retail and uh, has really had an effect on real estate, I think, because it's changed the way that companies do business and the amount of space they need. Hmm. All right. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born and what was it like to grow up there? I was born in, and grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. I uh, went to the University of Wisconsin and uh, played football and tennis. I, I got an uh, undergraduate degree in business, a master's degree in business, and then uh, a law degree. 
Hmm. I started out my career practicing law for about five years and then went into real estate and invested in other businesses as well. And then about 25 years ago, uh, I segued to the motion picture and media business with my uh, business partner, Paul Kalishman. And uh, we uh, have made a couple hundred movies, uh, had two films, won Academy Awards, and you know had an interesting time of it, which has led us into related businesses in uh, streaming and e-commerce. So uh, it's been uh, it's been a good career so far. Hmm. That was one of the questions I wanted to ask you: Is you know how do you go from practicing law to getting involved in the entertainment industry? Well, um, I haven't practiced law in many years, but I use my law degree pretty much every day in the work uh, I do, whether it's investing in real estate or investing in other businesses. And, um, you know, I'd always been interested in movies, as many of us are, and I decided that uh, I would uh, see if there was a place for me to be in that business. So I, I taught entertainment law at a university in Dallas for five years and studied and read as much as I could, met with as many people as I could, and then fortunately met my business partner, and who is quite brilliant. And uh, he's the other Paul in my life. The, the Paul that I wrote this book uh, with is Paul Zane Pilzer. And Paul Zane Pilzer is also a very smart guy. And he had started writing this book on the new Roaring Twenties in order to attempt to explain to his children uh, what might happen over the next 10 years and what they should be thinking about and doing. Unfortunately, Paul was stricken with Lewy body disease, which is a form of dementia and uh, uh, memory loss. So he was unable to finish the book. So he and his wife called me and asked me if I would complete the book for him and it took me about you know, three four months to do so and i've known you know paul and his family for 40 years so it was a labor of love and i was happy to bring it over the finish line it's now published and uh um you know i've been uh, focusing in my discussions on uh, the impact of artificial intelligence which of course is in the news everywhere at this point and uh we use AI in, in, in our businesses, and uh, we're seeing that extending and expanding. So um, I've been doing as much reading and talking to technologists and others as I can to try to gain an understanding of what the opportunities are and also you know, what the uh, dangers are. Hmm. So... Like I said, we're about to talk about the book, and the book is called, you know, The New Roaring Twenties, Prosper and Volatile Times. You know, with AI, you know, has rapidly begun to infiltrate every aspect of our daily lives. Now, I had an expert on just this week. I wanted, he was one of the leading voices of artificial intelligence, and he assured us that not only are there safeguards in place, but we can also prosper from it. Your book takes a very similar approach now, doesn't it? Well, <laughs> um, in general, yes. You know, we are cautiously optimistic about AI. It's certainly going to benefit humanity greatly. It's going to help us deal with climate change and uh, medical issues and uh, uh, 
diagnoses, uh, pharmaceuticals, logistics. It's, it's, it's going to kind of change everything and be very pervasive. However, in our view, there is more than a zero chance that it also means the end of us, uh, either accidentally or on purpose. Uh, an example of that is autonomous, autonomous military, uh, where uh, initially our Department of Defense has said that all decisions involving AI will be made by a human, but that's not the case with Russia, China, and most other countries. So in order to be competitive and defend our republic, our military is going to have to go to autonomous weapons where the targeting and kill decision is made by a machine. And this is going to change things. In addition, you know, the generative AI, the more advanced AI that we've seen in the last three or four years is based on large language models where uh, the AI will scrape the internet and other databases involving billions, in some cases, even trillions of data points which are then accumulated, this is going to raise all kinds of legal issues involving copyright and use of people's images. It's going to be a very interesting time uh, litigation-wise. And it also is going to be the first time in human history where stories, which essentially our culture and our civilization is based on stories, you know, money is a story, uh, religion is a story, uh, democracy is the story we tell each other, and that's why we still have a democracy, sort of, at this point. And we're now going to get our stories, at least in large part, from machines. Now, they are drawing those from human experiences, but it's their own assimilation of these stories, and it's going to be a very different world going forward, and there's a real question as to whether we want an alien intelligence, not from outer space, but one of our own creation, telling stories, particularly to our youth. So it's going to be uh, a time of great change, a time of great wealth and opportunity, particularly for those who are aggressively pursuing AI, but it poses military danger, it poses danger of fraud and of hacking and all kinds of mischievous behavior. And most importantly, we cannot completely discount the fact that the, the technologists and scientists who have developed this and are continuing to develop this, and this involves you know, the biggest uh, technology companies in the world, all of them are spending hundreds of millions, if not billions on AI, and are hurtling forward very quickly, as well as many, many startups, you know, probably uh, tens of thousands of startups who see an opportunity here to uh, be part of this revolution. And the effect of all this is that we can see a possible uh, destruction of our, our social uh, uh, interaction as, as humans. You know, we've seen the corrosive effect that social media has had on our national narrative and our dialogue, and particularly on young people who often become addicted 
to social media, this is going to be 100 times worse in terms of the impact that this will have on technology, culture, science, and the whole gambit of human endeavors. So, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic um, and I'm encouraged by the fact that, first of all, there are several government agencies that are acting very aggressively with respect to regulation, Federal Trade Commission, uh, and recently export controls were enacted in last October by a little-known bureau uh, within the Commerce Department, the Bureau of, of Industry uh, and Security, that is preventing the importation, the exportation rather, of very sophisticated uh, semiconductor chips to China, Russia, and other countries. And if this initiative is successful, together with a lot of the other regulation that is being imposed, it gives us an opportunity to perhaps get ahead of this and deal with it. The genie is clearly out of the bottle. And if this is something we have to deal with, it's not something we can ignore, but legislatively and from the standpoint of the executive, actions are being taken much faster than either of those organizations of government usually act. And then you're gonna have the judicial involved as we discussed a few minutes ago, uh, because there's going to be a ton of litigation. Let's assume that um, a AI device causes harm. Uh, is that the responsibility of the company using the AI? Is it the responsibility of the company that installs it? The company that wrote the software? And the answer is probably all of the above. So it, from, the, from a lawyer standpoint, this is AI is going to eliminate a lot of mundane tasks in terms of writing contracts, corporate minutes, reviewing depositions, but it's going to create a massive amount of litigation. So, you know, again, I'm cautiously optimistic because we have aggressive action by the legislative, by the executive, and the judicial will get involved in due course. So at least there's a recognition this is a truly big issue that needs to be dealt with. Do you see the current tech giants, you know, Apple, Microsoft, Google, maintaining the prominent positions as AI works its way further into our lives? Well, right now, uh, OpenAI uh, and ChatGPT4, uh, where Microsoft is the largest single investor, uh, is the leader in this field. And they have created the, the chat bot that's used the most and are probably the furthest ahead of any of the uh, large companies. But the short answer to your question is yes. Um, all of the major technology companies, Apple, Microsoft with chat GPT and OpenAI, Alphabet, that's Google and, and YouTube, Meta with Facebook and Instagram, Amazon with its uh, web services, AWS, which by the way is the most profitable part of Amazon, NVIDIA, which makes the chips, and even Tesla are all gonna be major players in this. And they're spending you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars trying to secure their position. 
unfortunately, the, the fact that these companies are being aggressive poses a real challenge for the regulators to provide the guardrails and to ring fence this thing before it gets out of control. So it'll be you know, an exciting next 10 years. And my co-author, Paul Pilzer, compared it to the original Roaring Twenties of, of 100 years ago, because that was a time of great technological breakthroughs, a lot of change in the way people lived their lives. And that's going to be very similar uh, in some ways to what we're going to experience over the next 10 years, although it's going to be much faster. It's going to be accelerated dramatically over anything we've ever experienced in our lives. And, you know, even the technologists and the scientists who are developing AI yeah, and focusing on various very surgical uses and also very general uses do not understand really how this works or where it's going to go. Um, yeah, that's a little concerning because all of us are going to be impact, impacted on it and we all need to determine what our role will be in dealing with the solution. Hmm. You know, with, in your opinion, you know, what happens if China wins the AI race? First of all, I don't know that they're going to. Um, I think it's unlikely. I think our government is taking actually some pretty intelligent steps. Um, this export control is not nothing. Currently, of the most advanced chips, uh, almost 95% are produced by the U.S., Taiwan, Japan, and the Netherlands. And the U.S. has managed to very quickly assimilate an alliance among those four countries where they're going to prevent these chips going out to China, Russia, and certain other directives. So I do think that this has a reasonable chance of succeeding and will significantly slow down China's uh, use of AI. Now, having said that, let me answer your question, which is what if China does win the race to AI? I don't think they're ahead, contrary to what a lot of people think. I do think they have a legitimate shot because they will develop their own chips um, they will pour plenty of resources into this. We'll just slow them down a bit. But if they ultimately have supremacy in this area, which, again, personally, I doubt that that will happen. But if they do have it, um, no, I think they will use it to cement their control over their own population. And they will use it to uh, improve their military and give themselves you know, a more advanced chance of anticipating anything we might do. I think it'll lead to them taking over Taiwan. I think that will happen very naturally because that's where a lot of chips come from. One of the things our government is doing is trying to move a lot of Taiwan's technical expertise and manufacturing capability to the U.S. But that's a process, and um, there are huge complexes and factories in Taiwan that currently produce these chips. That's one of the reasons, if not the major reason, why the U.S. is concerned about Taiwan. So 
I think China will use this to their own ends. Will they use it to attack the U.S.? I kind of doubt it. I think China is concerned about its own people, unlike Russia, which is sort of a wild card. You have no idea what they're going to do. And it's entirely likely that Russia will use technical nuclear weapons on Ukraine before we're finished with this thing. That is a possibility because they you know, are unhindered by any sort of morals or compulsions. Um, China sincerely wants control, but it wants the best for its people. And actually over the last 30 years has raised you know, billions of its own people out of abject poverty. So, you know, an alliance between the US or, and China, or at least a detente, would really be in everybody's interest because between the two countries, we have the most advanced technology uh, we have the most interest in providing for our people. And if we can at least develop a working economic relationship and social relationship, I think it would be the best for both countries. And hopefully we'll begin to realize that and they'll begin to realize that. And we'll see that happen during the new world twenties. You briefly just mentioned it. I was going to mention this a little later on, but you just briefly mentioned the Russia wild card. What's your optimistic outcome, you know, pessimistic outcome for the war in Ukraine and Russia's geopolitical future? Clearly, uh, Putin and Russia uh, made a mistake. They underestimated what this would be like and just assumed that this would be an easy task to assimilate Ukraine. You know, uh, Paul Pilzer and I have done a lot of business together in both Russia and China. And I met Putin for the first time 30 years ago when he was working for uh, Sobchak, the uh, mayor of St. Petersburg. And, you know, he feels that the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that was where he was raised and where he came from. He was, you know, an intelligence officer uh, in the old Soviet Union. His mission is to put the Soviet Union back together in some form and try to assimilate as many of these countries. He can't realize any of those ambitions if he doesn't get Ukraine. And that's the big uh, country, the most progressive country and the country with most economic potential. So he has to get Ukraine. Optimistically, um, Ukraine has you know, surprised everyone, myself included, in their ability to resist. Um, the optimistic solution is to reach a settlement where Ukraine does in fact grant Russia some of the territories it's already taken and reaches a uh, settlement with them that Ukraine can live with and Russia can live with. Really, neither country has indicated that they're willing to do that at this point, but that's the optimistic point of view, and that's what could well happen. On the pessimistic side, you know, uh, again, I see the possibility of Russia using 
you know, not large nuclear weapons, but tactical nuclear, nuclear weapons, which will have a devastating effect on Ukraine many times what Ukraine has already experienced. And at that point, I don't know, particularly if other, if countries are not willing to support Ukraine, you know, that Ukraine may end up being assimilated by uh, Russia and become part of Russia. And that will just encourage Putin to pursue other ambitious goals to, you know, assimilate other territories. Okay, Deval Nation, we are going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Stephen P. Jarko. Miss, just you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know, that's right, Cluzo style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Please give your attention to a few friends of my show, and we will be right back. 17.9 cycles ago, us machines defeated the humans. Now, we're living the good life here in Droidston, Manitoba. Morning, Gif! Morning, Dust! But there's still the problem of human infestation. That's what it's time to call Human Be Gone. Human Be Gone! Wherever you get your podcasts. Human Be Gone! Hello, Duval Nation. Derek Duval here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek DeBall Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling flexibility and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Derek Show. That's betterhelp.com slash Derek Show. Hey there, this is Frankie Ray, and you're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. My latest single, Over Now, is available on all streaming platforms. Hope you like it. Teachers... Do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. 
Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts. Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Hey, it's Michelle Fabre, and you're listening to The Derek Duval Show. You can hear my brand new single, I'm All That I Need, on all streaming platforms right now. This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge. Hi, this is Glenn. And this is Sonia from Echo Valley. And you are listening to The Derek Duval Show. Here's a song called Faces in the Mirror from our album Anarchy and Alchemy. everyone, this is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 197 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with Academy Award-winning producer and co-author of the book, The Roaring Twenties, Prosper in Volatile Times, Stephen P. Jarko. Cyber attacks, manipulative algorithms dominate the headlines of late with the NGM leak and such. You know, What does your book cover about these things? We spend quite a bit of time on on, on this. Um, you know, currently we have a little bit of an atomic war-like mutually assured destruction. The reason that Russia, as an example, and even China and other countries have not gone in and destroyed our infrastructure, which from a hacking standpoint, they're certainly capable of doing is that we would do the same thing to them, only better. We are ahead of them with respect to accessing glitches and faults in software and in computer systems, which are called zero days. It's an odd name that doesn't necessarily make sense, but that's what it's called when there's a fault in software. It has to do with how long you have 
in order to plug that gap before a hack will occur. And if you're at zero days, you have no time. Um, now, with respect to a country um, taking an aggressive action against us, I don't see that happening uh, because we would come back at them, you know, even more aggressively. We're set up to do that. Uh, our intelligence services are actually very sophisticated when it comes to this kind of thing. That doesn't mean they pick up on everything and that they can do everything, but they are more advanced than anybody else in the world. I guess in terms of a major infrastructure hack, the, the real concern would be um, a rogue uh, group with sufficient computing power and sophistication who don't really care uh, whether they survive or not. Uh, and some extremists, as we all know, are like that. And that could be where we have a vulnerability. Um, that doesn't mean that Russia and China aren't going to interfere with our elections. You know, they did somewhat last time. They will do so again in 2024. Uh, and further, um, AI is a threat to the election because it's entirely possible that deep fake images, images of a president or a uh, contender for the presidency will be presented in a very realistic format days before the election, making a statement that will influence the outcome of the election. Um, we should kind of expect that this is coming our way and hopefully people are in general are smart enough to recognize that when this comes, it's, it's not real. And further, we should expect it. So one of the things we can do is educate our electorate and say, don't believe everything you see. Obviously that's something that should have been communicated um, from the beginning of social media. Uh, Congress made a huge mistake when they enacted Section 230 of the Decency in Media Act in 1996, uh, which is a misnomer. It has nothing to do with decency in media. But what it did do is it absolved social platforms from liability with respect to the content that's on the platform so that anybody could kind of say anything. And the social platform, like a Facebook or others, would not be responsible. Now, to a certain extent, these platforms have taken steps in a very controversial way to regulate the content and to get rid of content that is racist or terrorist or has other uh, awful connotations, but they can't get all of it. And you know, how often have you been in a conversation where you'll be talking to someone and they'll make a pronouncement about something that they know to be true. And you inquire, well, where did you hear that? Well, somebody told me, where did they get it from? Well, they, they, they think they heard it on the, read it on the internet or heard it on the internet. Well, not everything on the internet is true. In fact, a, a great deal of it is not. And Clearly, one of the most important things we can do for our electorate and our young people 
is to encourage them to be cautious about what they believe and if possible to drill down and look for support of that simply because somebody says something uh, kind of doesn't mean anything and we need to be conscious of that and skeptical with respect to what we hear and right now people just don't do that unfortunately can you expand on ubi um are you for it and how do you think that would take hold in the u.s considering our current political climate well um my business my, my writing partner paul zane pilzer is very keen on it um his ambition is to have it replace most of our social welfare systems, uh, which are deep, I must acknowledge, deeply flawed and kind of a mess. And as are our Medicare and other uh, health insurance systems, they're just, they're difficult to follow, difficult to understand. I don't know how people uh, get through them. You know, I'm reasonably, I'm, educated and i'll tell you it takes a bit to figure out medicare and how to you know function with it uh when i turned 65 uh it took me a little bit of time to study it and figure it out so getting back to ubi paul pilzer strongly believes that given the fact that there's going to be a huge transition with respect to jobs uh whereby uh, a lot of jobs are going to be eliminated by artificial intelligence, and a lot of jobs are going to change, particularly middle management and white-collar jobs for the first time, that having a safety net, which our country really doesn't have much of a safety net, of universal basic income is critical, particularly during this transition of the new roaring 20s. Um, I'm not as sanguine regarding UBI as he is, I think it's very hard, going to be very hard to enact politically. Um, but if you could do it in the right way and use it to replace welfare of things where we provide people with things rather than food stamps, food, and provide them with you know, money each month, uh, you know, some people waste that money, but then they have a chance to start over next month. So I do think that conceptually, Paul's concept has a lot of merit. I'm concerned about, you know, whether it's a reality and, and realistic thinking. Okay. As we enter the final phase of the interview, I would not be doing my job if I did not ask what it was like to win the Academy Award for Departures and getting three nominations for the incredible film Gods and Monsters. Well, you know, one of the great thrills of my life, uh, you kind of dream of that, and certainly when I started making movies, uh, I didn't have expectations because we make very modest budget films. Uh, we don't make big studio pictures. I, I make the movies I can afford. Even if you have all the money in the world, it doesn't mean you're gonna win an Academy Award. You need some luck, you need, I think, some taste. And in the case of Gods and Monsters, you know, we, took the film out of competition to Sundance and nobody wanted the film. You know, it had a gay protagonist played by Ian McKellen uh, playing James Whale, the, the director. This was, you know, 25 years ago. This was before, uh, you know, there was a recognition of, of gay rights. 
and you know gay the the, the gay place in the movie business. So um, we then had to pay off a loan, and I I had to write a personal check for a million dollars to pay off that loan without a distribution deal. Fortunately, it all worked out. The film was picked up by Lionsgate for domestic distribution. They did a very good job. And um, we ended up making money off it. I got paid back, plus made a profit. In the case of Departures, I got the film in a rough cut form without music. And I was on the treadmill uh, and played the movie. And about halfway through, I started crying because it was such a touching film. And I got off the treadmill and called our acquisition executive who was working on that film and said, please buy this film. Let's see if we can get a deal done. And so uh, we acquired uh, domestic rights and um, the film was not expected to win the Academy Award. We were very surprised when it was shortlisted and then when it was nominated, it was because we owned another film called Tokyo Sonata, which was supposed to be the film that was going to be recognized in this regard, but it turned out to be Departures, uh, which is a very touching film and a, a slow moving film, but grabs people. And um, I went to all of the screenings of the Academy of the various uh, other films. And it was a French film called The Class that was one of the favorites. And then Waltz with Bashir, which was an Israeli film, which was uh, expected to win because it had won the Golden Globe. Um, but both those films were very shrill and difficult to get comfortable with. Whereas our film was very embracing, very humanistic, very thoughtful. And those who vote for the uh, Foreign Language Academy Award are largely older members of the Academy. And this film just, you know, resp they responded to this film much better than they did to the other two films. And so we went to the Academy Awards and night before we had dinner with our Japanese director and the actors and the Japanese producers and I said to them, I said, I don't know if we're going to win this. But we have the best film. So we have a legitimate shot. And lo and behold, Liam Neeson announced it. And uh, we had won. Um, something like that doesn't happen very often in your life. Uh, in both cases, we were very fortunate. Uh, but we also, you know, made some good choices. That's amazing. That's a great story. Thank you. Uh, Pierre de Coupetan said the most important thing in life is not the triumph but the struggle. You get a chance to talk to your younger self. What would you say to him? Life is like a game of tennis. I played tennis in, in high school and college. You play the game in point-tight compartments. You play at a point at a time. You don't worry about the last point, the mistakes you may have made. You don't worry about the next point because it's irrelevant. All that's in front of you is the point and the ball. And when you are playing tennis or life, you don't worry about the outcome. Your job is not to win the match. Your job is not to win the game or even the point. Your job is to hit that ball back more times than the other guy. And if you get the ball back three times, unless you're playing a world-class player, you will win almost all your matches. 
So you play the game and you play life in point tight compartments. All right. That's a great answer. So apart from the release of the book, what's next for you? Well, uh, we usually make uh, five to eight movies or shows a year, mostly for our own streaming service, but also for other streaming services. Um, as I mentioned, our streaming service, you know, against all odds is really growing. Um, you know, it's aimed at the gay audience. We have that niche. My business partner, Paul uh, Kalishman, is gay. I'm not. But I have a daughter who's gay, who lives in Sydney, Australia. So I think we understand that market pretty well. And our business is in the best shape it's ever been. And we're going to continue managing that business as well as the other ancillary businesses. And, um, I'm uh, enjoying talking about the book to and having conversations with people like yourself. I appreciate the opportunity. It gives me a chance to talk about our work, but also talk about uh, what the future might hold. Okay. All right. Uh, Stephen, uh, based on your answers today, I feel like you might be able to give a great uh, answer to my final question, which is my favorite question of the entire evening. And that is, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth? If we're going to deal with the world, with AI and all the other things that are going on in the world, the most important thing we can do is be more human and reach out to others and interact with other humans. Uh, with devices dominating our lives, and we've all gone to restaurants where people are just staring at their devices and not talking to one another. Uh, and devices can be very helpful. Maybe we're using a device to have this conversation. But um, there's always opportunities to be of service to others. And we should look for those opportunities. And we should also reach out to other people, either friends or new friends, um, and because everybody has a need and everybody wants to be listened to. And if you will do this, you will establish human contact and you will become more human as a result. And if there's one way we can resist the rage of the machines, uh, it's by being more human, more kind, more thoughtful, and reaching out and touching others. Great answer. The book is The New Roaring Twenties, Prosper and Volatile Times, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy your books online. Stephen, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. I know I learned an incredible amount of information today. And I guarantee my listeners got an education as well. Best of luck to you in your future endeavors and good luck with your network. And good luck to you. Thank you for the opportunity. And just like that, Deval Nation, we come to the end of episode 197. I want to thank Stephen for taking the time to come on the show and speak with me. What an incredible conversation. And I hope your opinions on AI have changed. I also want to give a huge shout out to Movie Matt over at Too Many Captains for assisting me greatly with the research for this interview. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, if you enjoyed this episode. I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up today for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. 
We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there. And we have everything with our logo on it, including magnet stickers and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun T-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tee Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, folks... I know there is a lot of horrible things going on in the world right now, but please take a minute to try and find one good thing going on and focus on it for five solid minutes. Make that five minutes be nothing but the highlight of your day if need be, but focusing on something good in a world gone to hell might be all some of us need to hang on to the hope we all desperately need right now. Nostar, God bless, and see you next time. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.